Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part 3 to his sermon series titled, Put Your Sin to Death. If you're staying in here, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to study verse 13, but read verses 12 to 14 here in just a moment. But while you're turning and I've got an opportunity here, uh, let me pass along just a little bit of some church family matters. Um, This whole two services thing that we are doing. Um, this is not a model that we want to continue long-term. Uh, this is not some strategy for church growth that we're trying to implement here. Um, our reasoning behind doing this is in a short season of time, God sent a slew of people and we didn't even have enough chairs for everybody. So if God sends souls, we want to be faithful to serve them in, in some way. And we're thankful for that. But, but in this season, this temporary season where we're divided up in the times of worship, at least for this one service. Understand we've got other times of worship, but for this, this time of worship, some of our greatest concern has been that it might divide fellowship, that the, the unity of the whole church family, we might struggle to maintain. So understand a few things, you know, one of them being, if we come to see that this two services isn't necessary, We'll go back to one service, Um, but we also want to give the encouragement on your all's end. We want to encourage you to work to maintain unity with the whole church family um, in some of the various ways that you can engage with folks and, and continue fellowship with them. But we also want to occasionally do some things uh, that will help us maintain the unity of the whole church family. One of those things coming up is uh, our annual Thanksgiving meal that we do. Uh, So every year it's a fun time. It's an enjoyable, satisfying uh, thing that we do. We gather together and have a day of feasting for our Thanksgiving meal. And so we're going to do that again this year. The weekend of the 21st and 22nd, that weekend we're not going to have the Saturday night service. We're only going to have the the Sunday service on the 22nd. Um, And afterwards, as we do every year, we'll tear down the chairs in here, set up tables, and we'll share our meal together. As chaotic as it may be, however it works out, we're looking forward to sharing a meal. And this will be one of the ways we're trying to continue the unity and fellowship there with a day of feasting. So know that that's coming up then. All right, let's turn our eyes to the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, let's start in verse 12 and read down through verse 14, but we're specifically studying verse 13 for the last time, verse 13 this morning. So verse 12, please read along with me. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
Well, we've been out of the book of Romans for uh, four weeks now, so I thought it might be helpful just to do just a very quick um, jogging of our memory of where we've come from in the book of Romans. Um, because you may remember the book of Romans, while we can jump into a passage and get a lot out of just one verse, understand that from chapter one, verse one, there is a logical argument that is unfolding in this book. The first 11 chapters especially is there is a premise that is stated and then the explanation and unfolding of that premise in, in, in laying this out by using reason and logic with the scriptures to show this. So if you will, just real quickly go back to chapter one for just a second. Um, chapter one and look at verse 16, um, every single phrase, every single word couplet in these two verses is, is greatly significant. Chapter one, verses 16 and 17, this is the central idea, the premise of the whole book that is laid out there. So verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay. What's that word mean? What is the gospel? That's 11 chapters of the book of Romans a full, big explanation of the gospel. But keep going, for it is the power of God. How is the gospel the power of God? We've been seeing miraculous and supernatural work that God does in salvation. The power of God for salvation. What is this salvation? What are we saved from? What are we saved to? To everyone who believes there's a critical phrase. How are we saved? How does it happen? Do I go be good and do a bunch of good works and good deeds? No, it is by faith. That's the critical heart response to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have not yet come to that section, chapters nine through 11, to talk about the mysteries that are there to come. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Both the righteousness of who God is and the righteousness that he grants. A righteous standing that he gives when we come by faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The next ten and a half chapters is... Paul being led by the Holy Spirit to unpack and explain those two verses right there. So if you are new to the book of Romans, new to the Bible in general, one of the things that you are seeing is that the message of God from heaven is very different from what you hear all around you. The, the religion of the world is constantly preaching, you're awesome and God is really excited about how awesome you are. And what God really wants from you is he just wants all of you awesome people, just know that you're awesome. Just want you, you're awesome. Go know that you're awesome. Yes, yay, you're awesome. And just go indulge yourself and be as happy as you possibly can. That's worldly religion. And that's why people are very often surprised when they read the Bible and God's not just cheerleading how awesome you are. He's telling you how unawesome you are he is boldly and unapologetically telling you how awesome he is and how far short we fall of what we were called to and to tell us that we are under the wrath of God. He doesn't say that because he's a big meanie. He says that because this is reality. 
We are under his wrath because of our sin. And so what happens in the book of Romans is the the unpacking of all of that. Chapter one, he speaks of all of the nations of the earth and how they have rejected God, refused to worship him, rebelled against his law, served themselves and have gone away from him and are therefore under wrath. Chapter two, he comes to the nation of Israel a people that he had done special things with, but he explains to them, you are not saved. You are not righteous just because you were born to a bloodline. You also have disobeyed my law and you are under my wrath. Chapter three then summarizes all souls on the earth, all who are descended from Adam are under the wrath of God. You're not okay. But then this glorious turn came in chapter three. This, this, this amazing place in chapter three turned so as to call out to all the nations to say, but God has not abandoned us. God has not left us though he could have. God has designed a way that is righteous for us to be counted as righteous in his eyes and then one day be made righteous. The way that he has done that is through the work of his son, that Jesus came, bore the wrath of God for sins on the cross, bled, tortured, was uh, was put to death, rose from the grave in order to make a way so that now his righteousness can be counted as ours for all who will come to him, not in whatever way we decide, but in the way that he has mandated, by faith, true faith. And so then what began to happen is more unpacking. Chapter four specifically addressed, it is by faith, did you hear me? It's by faith and not by your works, though all the world's always wanting to preach. It's by my goodness, by my goodness. No, it is by faith. And here's why it is by faith. Chapter five then came to say, now here are many of the benefits that you get by being made right with God. The word there is justified. That's the biblical key word. You must be justified. If you are not, it's not a joke. You really are facing eternity in the wrath of God in hell. You must be justified. Turn to Christ. For those who are, for those who are in Christ, here are benefits that come. And and, and a dozen of them are rattled off. We have peace with God. We are under the grace of God now. And and, and these things were explained further. Then chapter six, a, a bit of a turn came when it began to be explained that for all who are in Christ, the moment that you are justified, that happens in an instant. If you have not turned to Christ, like that can happen in the next 30 seconds. If in your heart, you will respond, come to Jesus by trusting in him and crying out to him to save you. In that moment, You are justified, but then something happens that's going to take the rest of your time that you have here on this earth. This process that you then enter, the Bible calls 
sanctification. That's the process where we're being transformed. We're being changed. You become the project of God and he is molding you, changing your thinking, changing your attitude, changing your behavior, changing your deeds, your lifestyle. There is, there is a progression that God is bringing about. And God is doing this in every true Christian. Chapter seven then continued preaching about this sanctification to show some more aspects were freed from the law. And then we also looked at that section of the really frustrating battle with myself. I've got a battle internally. I've got sinful desires and yet God is transforming. Chapter eight, where we find ourselves is continuing to preach sanctification. It's going to do that all the way through verse 30. And then the subject matter will, will turn a little bit again. But chapter eight, specifically what we've been seeing is this, how the Holy Spirit is at work in us, in our sanctification. That's the subject. The spirit of God has been given to us and he is now at work in us. And so we've mentioned there are about nine works, nine things that the Holy Spirit is doing in all of God's people, all who are in Christ. And we've been making our way down through this list. So we've been studying verse 13 and we're on this fourth work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in us to lead us to put to death our sin. And we really slowed down on this one. And, and part of the reason we slow down on this one is this is a crucial, but often overlooked truth about what it means to be a Christian. This is one of the major aspects of what it means to follow Christ. Now, it's not the only thing. Okay. And there are other passages of the Bible that will show us here's a major part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Okay, uh, to bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all the nations. That's a major aspect of what it even means to be a Christian. Scripture will address things like, uh, uh, very thankful for Amber, addressing the, the need of those who are hurting, us caring and ministering to those who are in need. That's a major aspect of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ. This that we see right here is another one of those major subheadings. What's it mean to be a Christian? Put your sin to death and come into greater and greater obedience to God. This is a major aspect of what it means to live as a follower of Christ. So we've slowed down to spend some time here, but even though we could stay longer, and believe me, I could keep preaching sermons week after week of more from verse 13. We got to move on. Okay. We eventually, we have more truths we need to see. So I'm going to make today the last message that we look at from verse 13 specifically on this subject, putting our sin to death. So what I want to do is I want to address two more things, uh, two more truths from scripture that we need to connect to this passage. And then I'll end with just some final application. So two truths and then an application. Here is number one. If you're uh, taking notes, I want to give you a sentence and make a connection here. The spirit working in us to put our sin to death is the father's answer to Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17 for us to be sanctified. 
If you'll flip with me back to that passage, John 17, if you didn't get all that sentence and want to write it down, you can find me after the message here as well. But if you'll find, join with me in John 17 there, here's what's going on. And I know we reference this pretty often. Um, it's because it, this is a big event. On the night of Jesus's betrayal, the night before Jesus bled for you, the night before he endured the worst agony of history, in order to make a way for souls to be saved, Jesus prayed for the church. Jesus prayed for all that his blood would be applied to. Jesus prayed for you who are in Christ. Jesus prayed for you the night before he went to the cross. This is, this is an historical moment. It's a historical prayer that in this moment, Jesus prayed for all believers down through the ages and the father has been answering that prayer for the last 2000 years. This is a big event. Jesus prays for your everlasting good, your everlasting joy. He bled to bring you into the fullness of blessing, joy, grace, and good. And Jesus prayed for that to be brought about. And the Father has been answering this prayer for 2,000 years. And he will continue to throughout your life and however long this age remains. So I wanna show you just one truth in this because it is a major truth. So John 17, find verse 11 with me there. So Jesus is praying to the father. He's already said numerous things. We pick up in verse 11. I am no longer in the world. He's getting ready to depart. But yet they, he's praying for believers, they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Watch this. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are. Now, there is a whole sermon there on the phrase that they may be one. Jesus prays for the unity of his people, the unity of the church. That's not our sermon for today. Specifically, the part that I want you to hang on to there is Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. Now look at verse 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus prayed for your joy and your fullness of joy. And there's a major connection that I, I want you to see here. Jesus prays for your joy and your joy will come in connection to what he prays next. That's kind of a big deal. Jesus prayed for our joy, but you can even get worldly religion to believe that. But then what they want to say is, yeah, Jesus wants my joy. That's why he wants me to go live in this adulterous relationship because it makes me happy. No, no, no. Jesus prayed for your joy and your joy will never come in sin. Your joy will also never come by mere earthly endeavors. Money is not going to bring you to the fullness of joy that God intends to bring you to. 
Your fullness of joy will come in connection to the rest of what he prays. So follow with me. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are the people of God are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I want you to hang on to that phrase. The people of God are not of the world. Why? Because Jesus is not of the world and we are in him. We are attached to him. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, it is one of the aspects of our salvation. When you turn to Christ and you are born again, you are justified. We would love it if at that moment we left, we departed from this cursed world with all of its politics and elections, and we were brought right up into the glorious kingdom of heaven. Aren't you ready for the kingdom of righteousness? We were brought right into the glory of that kingdom to come, but that's not God's will. God's will is for us to stay here in a world that is currently under the dominion of the evil one. But Jesus prays that we would not be under the lordship of the evil one. He prays that we would be kept, kept from the evil one. And by the way, you, you notice the Bible all the time using this language that when we're younger believers, it doesn't make sense. But do you, the Bible's constantly using this kind of language of, you got to keep them. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Why do we need the spirit? He grabs onto us and shuts our mouths sometimes and holds us back from being seduced. Because this is the reality. If God did not give his grace from heaven, you and I lack the spiritual strength to keep ourselves. We lack the spiritual strength to keep ourselves saved, to keep ourselves on the path of obedience to Christ. We would be seduced like mice licking the peanut butter off a mousetrap. We would be seduced by the world were it not for the grace of God coming in many ways and holding us, keeping us. So hang on to that and then jump to verse 16 here. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Every time the Bible repeats something, there's something being emphasized. It's like an exclamation point put there. And then verse 17, watch this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All right, so let me kind of summarize here. Key words. Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And then watch this, he prays, sanctify them. That's what we've been talking about in Romans. Justification happens in a moment. And then this process of cleansing, purifying, being changed, being made holy. Jesus prays for all who are in him to be sanctified. Prays for them to be sanctified. Sanctify them, how? In your truth. Your word is truth. Now, let me once again here, imitate my hero, Paul and pull a Paul. Okay. Paul did this all the time. So it's justified. Totally jump on a rabbit trail, but then bring it right back. You read Paul. He does it all the time. So it's, it's okay. He tells us we can do it. Let me do it. Let me do a rabbit trail, but we're going to bring this back um, to, to show kind of where we're heading here. Let me give a little bit of a Greek lesson here. In Greek, the word for earth is, is the word, the letters are gamma and eta. 
So transliterated into English, that would be G-E. But the E there is pronounced with an A. So the way you pronounce the Greek word for earth is gay. Now also in Greek, just like in English, a prefix can be added to a word and it negates it. Okay, so like in English, you got likely and unlikely. What does that prefix UN do? It, it negates, okay? Same thing with a, the, the letter A, and we get that from Greek. So someone could be a theist who believes in God, or an atheist, an atheist, someone who does not believe in God. That, that letter A negates. Well, in Greek, that letter alpha, when it is added to the beginning of a word, it negates the word that follows. Well, do you know what the Greek word for holy is? Well, based on what I told you, you can probably take a pretty good guess. It is a-gay. And we pronounce it hagios. It's a-negated gay. Not of the earth. Not of this world. Now, I hope I'm not the only one when I see those kinds of things. Those are the moments I like want to lay down in my office for an hour and just bask in the beauty of words and God's truth and such. But th this is a truth that we're seeing just even by the definition of this word here. What it means to be holy is the calling to be not of the earth, not of the world. Now, if the fall had never happened and, and the earth continued on as God designed it in glory, then to be worldly would be the same as being heavenly. But this is a cursed world. This is a world in rebellion to God. And so to be a worldly man, a woman of the world, even though sometimes the world uses that like as a compliment to say that someone is a, a worldly man, they mean that as a title of sophistication. This is something disgraceful in the eyes of God. To be worldly is to dishonor him. God has called his people to be like Christ, not of this earth. There is a way in which when we are united to Christ, we are counted. We are not of this world because your citizenship is in heaven. But the process of God transforming us is the process of us becoming more and more not of the earth, more and more heavenly, godly, holy, let me show this to you in, in another place here. If you'll join me in another passage and you can leave John 17, but come to 2 Corinthians chapter six with me, please. 2 Corinthians six. I wanna give you kind of the biblical definition of holiness and then some explanation with it. 2 Corinthians chapter six. Now I'm gonna emphasize verse 17. So look at it with me, but then we're gonna back up and read a little bit more context. So verse 17, look what it says here. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. So there's kind of a biblical explanation of holiness. But now back up a little bit, back up to, to verse 14. There's a, a section here that is addressing some Christian living and the call to holiness. And so let me show you kind of how it's explained there. In verse 14, what he says is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. 
So scripture says that a Christian is not to be romantically involved with a non-Christian, not to marry an unbeliever. That would be taking something holy and then binding it together with something that is unholy. So keep going there. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now watch this. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said. Now watch this. These are quotes from the Old Testament. God spoke these things to the nation of Israel and applied them in a particular physical kind of way. But now we're being shown how, you know, remember God created Israel to be a type and a picture of numerous things. One of them being the New Testament church. So how do we take Old Testament uh, instruction to Israel and then apply it to the New Testament church? We're shown some ways here. This is applied to the new covenant church. So here is the address. I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. So think about what God said there to Israel. Out of all the nations of the earth that had rejected God and gone to serve idols, God came to one people, called them to himself, and in many physical ways, he made covenants with them, gave them promises, made them into his people on the earth. God came and dwelled in their camp, dwelled among them in the temple and such. And God said, if I, the Lord who is holy and going to come and live amongst a people, you have got to be holy. Come out from the nations, be separate from their idolatry, be separate from their uncleanness and rebellion and be my special people. Now this is applied to the New Testament church and it is applied in more eternal ways. We have been made the people of God in Christ eternally. God has entered into covenants with us eternally. God comes to dwell in our midst, not just by living in the town of Ferdinand, but by coming to dwell inside of us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. God comes to live in his people and says, if I who am holy and going to come live in you, you keep your temple holy. Come out from their midst. Come out from the rebellion of the world. Come out from the uncleanness of the world and be separate. This is an explanation of what it means to live in holiness, leave the world, come into heavenliness, godliness, be separate from what is unclean. All right, so let's try to pull all those things together here. This word holy, at its root, it means not of this world. Hagios, by the way, then the word sanctify is the word hagiazzo. So it's the same word for holy, just made into a verb form, to make holy. The process of sanctification is God transforming us into holiness. But now think back to John 17 and those things I showed you, and we'll see the point here. Jesus prays, holy father. Why do you think he used that title? Because of what he was praying for. Holy father, keep them, keep them in 
your name. Jesus prays that all whom his blood would be applied to, all of his sons and daughters, we would be kept and then we would be cleansed. That we would be secure in our salvation and then that we would be sanctified. Jesus prayed for your salvation to be kept. By the way, do you think the father would say no to that? Okay, there's yet another passage of the Bible showing clearly that in Christ, our salvation is secure. It's not possible to be saved, but then unsaved if someone is truly converted and born again. Jesus prayed for you to be kept and Jesus prayed for you to be sanctified. Jesus was going to the cross to suffer, bleed, and die, and he prayed that this would be effective and that we would be kept. Guys, this is how it works. Jesus prayed for us, and the Father is answering. Jesus acted as our high priest, the one mediator between God and men. He petitioned God on our behalf, and the Father answers. Jesus prayed for your good, prayed for your joy, and your joy comes in connection with all that he prayed after that, that we would progress in holiness. Your joy will come in connection to your godliness. 10,000 years from now, you and nobody else will give a rip about all of your earthly achievements. Nobody's going to care if you were popular. Nobody's going to be impressed by your bowling trophies. Nobody's going to care. All of those earthly endeavors, all of those things that we're so tempted to give our earthly time to, all of the, the, the pursuits that are only temporary, it's not going to matter. Christian, that is not where your joy is found. You will not come to fullness of joy by those things, but you will come to fullness of joy by your sanctification, being made holy, being made fit for heaven. This is where our joy and, and gladness will come. Jesus prayed for it and the father is answering. So, so watch this here. The father answers Jesus's prayer to sanctify us by sending us his spirit to do what Romans 8, 13 is showing us. The Holy Spirit, he is the answer to Jesus's prayer. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified. And then we saw that part there. Jesus prayed according to the will of the Father. How would we be sanctified? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Christian, we in, endeavor in this effort of sanctification and we give our effort into these things. But understand you are not sanctified primarily by your power and your effort. We are sanctified by the miraculous work of the word of God. Guys, every time we come here and we open the word of God, there are supernatural things happening right now. Okay. This is not some mere human endeavor. There are angels and demons fighting right now over your attention. 
over your soul right now. What happens when we open up the word of God is that battles rage, supernatural work occurs, and God is at work in awakening, sometimes hardening, that's up to his will, but sanctifying God's people. But also the same kind of thing happens on Tuesday, Wednesday morning as you're driving to work and you turn on Thy Word Network to listen to your favorite preacher. As we are opening the word, engaging with the word, this is how we're sanctified. We're not sanctified primarily by me grunting and sweating. We're sanctified primarily by the word of God changing how we think, changing our attitudes, transforming our behavior. So remember when we talked about worship transforms you, this is where we get this. We're sanctified by the word of God. There is an application there, Christian. Work heartily to engage with the word. So much seed to the word and you will reap much fruit. So little and you will reap little. But I want you to watch this formula. Here's how it works. Here's the equation that we see here in John 17 and Romans 8. Holy Jesus, because by the way, I, I haven't made this connection yet. Jesus says, I am not of this world. What's the definition of holy? To be not of the earth. And he prays for us to not be of the earth. That's the definition of holy. Holy Jesus prayed to the Holy Father to send his Holy Spirit to use the Holy Scriptures to make you and I, his people, holy like he is holy. God speaks and says, you be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. What Paul is doing in Romans 8, understand this, this is what a lot of the New Testament is. It's just further explanation of something Jesus preached. What Paul is doing in Romans 8 is just further explaining John, 17, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, where all of these kinds of things are revealed. Paul being led by the Spirit to explain these works. Jesus prayed for us to be sanctified. The Father is doing it. And part of the application is that this needs to matter to us. I'll come back to that thought later. So there was the first thing. Let's look at the second now. Second, second thing we want to look at this morning. Putting our sin to death by the Spirit involves putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting our sins to death by the Spirit involves putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Taking off the old filthy garments of our former manner of life and putting on the new clothing that is provided for us. It's offered to us. The robes of righteousness, of a right and godly way of living. Put off the old and put on the new. You might think of yourself as a house, a house with many rooms. Um, you remember Jesus gave an illustration like this one time. I'll, I'll talk about it here in just a moment. I'm gonna expand it just a little bit. But let's imagine that you are a house and in one of the rooms inside of you, let's just pull a little Pilgrim's Progress here, a man named Bitterness came to live in one of those rooms. Now, Bitterness could be an unwanted guest, like we don't want it there, but we're struggling with it, or Bitterness can be a bosom friend, depending on where we are spiritually. But let's just say you're reading the Word of God 
You come to Hebrews 12, which tells us to, to not allow any root of bitterness to live inside of us. We're convicted by it. So you kind of, in the illustration, you come to the room the bitterness has been living in, you knock on the door and you tell him to hit it. It is time to get out of there. And for several days, you're able to keep him out. But here's what happens. This is just human nature. If the room is left vacant, bitterness will just come sneak back in. What did Jesus say happens when he removed a demon from someone, but they did not receive Christ? Remember what he said? The house gets swept and cleaned up a little bit. The demon stays gone for a little while, but then the demon sees that the house is empty and he comes back. And when he comes back, he brings friends. And he actually finds that it's easier to live there now that it's swept up and cleaned a little bit. That is morality apart from the gospel. That is attempting to obey God and be right with God apart from salvation and receiving Christ. Now, there is a similar kind of thing that can happen with the Christian, not in regard to demons, but in regard to vices. If you come to the room where bitterness lives and you tell him to hit it, you had better bring someone else to come live in the room. Because if we do not, we'll just keep repeating that process. You know the process? You've probably been there. I know I have. You feel guilty about something like, I'm going to stop this. And we grunt and we sweat and we fight to try to get it out. But we never bring its opposite virtue in. We're just trying to fight what's bad without living what is right without growing and adding the virtue. And what happens is over and over the process, the frustrating cycle of failing in our fight to sin. So friends, this is why scripture tells us not only to die to our sin, but to live to righteousness. We are not only to put off the old, we are to put on the new. It is not enough to die to vices, we must grow and add the virtues. We need to know that because sometimes we can kind of fall into this pattern of thinking that what it means to be good is just to avoid doing bad things. You know, just avoid the bad. Don't rob banks and I'll be a good Christian. The walk of following Christ is not just of avoiding bad, evil things. It is to walk in the way of glory. It is to live the standard that we've been called to. We have been called to holiness. Holiness is heavenliness. It's moral excellency, not moral mediocrity. It's not like here's what's awful and we're called just like one step above awful. Just don't do the really terrible things. No, we are called to walk as Christ walked, to be virtuous, to be godly. And this is so much connected to the work of the spirit in our lives that what does Galatians 5 call all these virtues? It calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Why, why does it have that title? Like, why doesn't Galatians 5 just call it, here's a bunch of virtues Christians should have. It calls it the fruit of the Spirit. One is because the only way we'll come to these is by the help and the grace of God that comes to us by the work of the Spirit. But it also means that every soul in which the Spirit is dwelling, there's fruit that is going to grow. There is fruit that is going to come about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
faithfulness, self-control. I don't think God meant that list to be exhaustive. It's giving a summary of the kinds of virtues that we are to grow in. But the point that we're making here is we are to put off the old and we are to put on the new. The spirit is working all these things in us. We don't understand all how it works. We know that we are to be giving effort and sweat into these things, knowing that if any good happens, it's been the spirit who's been at work. The spirit works in many and various ways, like the church. I believe scripture shows that would be the primary way that the spirit works is through his people and the gifts that he gives. But let me show this to you in scripture. Flip over to Ephesians 4 with me, please. Ephesians 4. I want to be careful here that I don't steal too much of Pastor Ben's thunder as he's preaching through the book of Ephesians. We'll look at a little bit of what he's already preached and then a little bit into the future here. But Ephesians 4, find verse 22. Look what we see here. Uh, look, look at the pattern, the equation we're given. That in reference to your former manner of life, this is where we were before Christ, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. By the way, that is another way of explaining sanctification. It's another synonym that the New Testament will use for sanctification, renewal. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, and put on, okay, so we saw put off, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put off and put on. Here's what I love that comes next. We're given some practical examples of put off and put on. So for instance, look at verse 25. Lay aside falsehood, put off, and speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What do we do? Put off the lying, put on honesty, integrity, speaking truth. And then I love verse 28. I think this may be the greatest example in the whole Bible. Full repentance, put off and put on. Look at it in verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Do, do you see the pattern that we're given there? So the thief must stop thieving. Some, sometimes, like in our younger years of Christianity, we can think, okay, that's righteousness, just stop the bad. No, 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 look at the rest of what he says. Not only is the thief, okay, a thief hears the gospel, okay? Dude may have robbed a bank the night before, comes to church that Sunday morning, mocking God, hears the gospel, turns to Christ, and is born again that day. That can happen, you gotta know that Christian. That can happen, that day he's born again, and the thinking will begin to change. And he'll realize, I gotta stop this stuff. So the thief must no longer steal. But now the put on, what must he do? He must work. Work and labor with his own hands. So as to provide for himself. But then you notice it doesn't stop there. It goes further. Work and labor to a degree that he has an excess. But not an excess so that he can build up his bank account and live for his pleasures. What is it? So that he is able to give to those who are in need. It is the absolute complete opposite. I once took and now I give. I once operated in selfishness and now I live in selflessness. 
I once lived for myself and now I am giving to serve others. It is the put off and the put on. The complete and utter opposite. This is what the gospel does. This is the change that salvation in Christ brings. It transforms us from who we used to be into the complete opposite of it. Now understand that when we come to heaven, the glorious fullness of all that will be done. But we need to make as much progress in that now. And as we do, not only do we store up more reward, we show the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is revealed. The authenticity of Christ is revealed when we who once lived in a former manner of life are transformed to the complete opposite. And people who used to know us back then look in and are amazed at he who once was grumpy now is cheerful. He who once lusted now is content. He who once gossiped now speaks words of love. He who wants, and we just keep going down this list. Let us, let us be transformed. Let the mouth that once uttered profanity begin to speak words of grace. Let the heart that once grumbled and griped now put on thanksgiving. Let us, who put, let us put away negativity, self-pity, envy, strife. Let's put on the joy, the peace, the contentment, the delight we have in Christ because of the hope that we have put off and put on. This is what it fully means to repent and to die to our sin. Well, now lastly, let me just bring some application, final application to this verse here. When you read the Bible, you will greatly increase the fruit that you get out of it. If you'll ask questions of the text. Let me give you three questions to ask of every passage that you read. That, that I'm telling you that, that what you get out of the Bible will, will increase if you'll ask these three questions. This is not all that you could, but these are three big ones. Number one, what does this passage show me about God? Number two, what does this passage show me about how I am to respond to God? And then number three, why is this in the Bible? Now that last one there, I, I want to tease that one out just, just a little bit. Why is it in the Bible? Of all the things that we wish were in the Bible and God chose not to include it, God was very intentional about what he gave us in the word. He has given us what is sufficient. We're told that all that we need for life and godliness is in the word of God. So we should ask of every passage, why is it in the Bible? Like what is being shown to me here that God knows is so critical? If I can keep teasing that out a little bit. Why do many refuse to study the book of Leviticus? Why instead is worldly religion like the most popular thing is just we'll do topic studies on whatever everybody in the world's talking about. Oh, everybody's talking about social justice. Okay, let's do a 42 week study on social justice then. Why is the book of Leviticus neglected? It's because folks will unthinkingly just assume I don't need it. We must approach the Bible with the knowledge God gave us what we need. If it's in the Bible, I need it. We don't always know exactly why we need it at the start. We operate first from the principle, if it's in there, I need it. Then we study it. Then the light bulbs come on. We're like, oh, that's why God gave it. 
always ask the question, why is this in the Bible? So let me ask it of this text here. Why did Jesus pray John 17? Why does Ephesians 4 and other letters of the New Testament preach what it does about put off and put on? Why did God give us the amazing gift of having the Holy Spirit come to us? And then why does he tell us so much about it in scripture like in Romans 8? Here is some of the conclusion that we need to come to. God wants you to know he is holy and he calls us to be holy and that has got to matter to us. God is holy and our holiness matters to him. God is holy. He wants you to know that because there is a certain way we approach God when we know that he is holy. Guys, worldly religion rejects God's holiness. They love to talk about God's love. They, they have created a God in their own image that rejects everything their flesh doesn't like about who God is. And they only hang on to this one thing. He's loving. And then they create all this world of what it means. So he just wants me to frolic and be happy by indulging myself in whatever I want. You approach God a certain way by the way that you think of him. What you know about God determines how you think and every part about your life. There's a certain way you approach God if you only think he's cool. He's just cool. There's a certain way you come to him. When you know that he is holy, 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 that around the throne of God, there are angels who never stop covering their eyes so as not to look on his holiness and never stop crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy. There's a certain way we come to him. There's a certain way we view life and obedience when we know that he is holy and that holiness matters. Why is this in the Bible? Because this is reality. And God explains reality as it is. God is holy. Holiness must matter to us. And we must give effort to that which matters. Let us endeavor to start diminishing the energies that we give to endeavors that are not eternally valuable. And let us strive to give great effort to that, that which will still matter 10,000 years from now. We do not want to stand before God and have the bulk of what we offer of our life, the time, energy, resources, everything. We do not want it to be wood, hay, and stubble that is burned up, but rather to have a great reward and to glorify him. So Christian, let's sow to the spirit and do so heartily. And if you're here and you have never turned to Christ, never turned to him to be saved from the judgment that you are under, I plead with you to do so. And I get it. Before you'll ever do that, you got a decision to make about who you will believe. Will you believe the religion of the world or will you believe God who speaks in scripture? God who speaks in scripture says that on your own, you are not okay. You are under his judgment and you must be saved. Come to Jesus. Turn to him in your heart. Place your trust in him. Cry out that he would save you and he will. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we pray hallowed be your name. You are holy and I pray that you come to bring us to understand more of your holiness, that we will reverence you, fear you, love you, worship you as we ought. Lord, I pray that as we're getting ready to dismiss here and to leave, that you'll give us the grace, Father, that we'll go on to live as holy people. Father, change our thinking, change our attitudes, transform us, O Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.